Welcome back. Gregory House South and North. Um, so what we did last time we talked is we were talking about the way that theology serves, or we, we got our foot in. We'll keep doing that. We're not going to move past that. We're just going to expand on it. The way that theology serves the life and mission of the church. And, and, and part of that conversation is the theology is for worship, the theology is for mission, the theology is for pastoral um, uh, wherewithal, you know, serves the pastorate, uh, serves the, the worship of the people of God. And that um, theology is integral to the church's life. It's integral to the church's life. Theology is an office given to the church, not first and foremost to the academy even, but to the church. Now we're going to press on, and I want to lay for the next um, three sessions, I want to lay a really thick foundation that we'll just draw from over and over throughout all of our times here at Gregory House, which is um, <laughs> a constructive engagement with reality. That's a big word, right? Reality. Not just the world, reality um, in Jesus Christ. So that's what I want to talk about. We'll do it in three, last, three, three sessions, three theology parties. We'll do um, reality in Christ with respect to the knowledge of God, which we'll do today, reality in Christ with respect to a knowledge of humanity, how we know ourselves in, in that one who is authentically human, truly and fully, but authentically human. And then reality in Christ, knowledge of the world. So let's start with that. Uh, by way of getting introduced here, you guys have two uh, readings. And I think you can get them from Sophia, yes? Sophia has them. What I want to do is I'm not going to, you know, in the proper sense, like teach these texts, go through these texts. But what I want you to do is just use these as complementary reading to our conversations. You're going to see amplification of my teaching. You'll, you'll hear echoes of my teaching in these. Two books from Michael Reeves. Michael Reeves is uh, actually a wonderful Christian thinker, British Christian thinker. I think he's probably you know, the heir of J.I. Packer, something like that. Um, he wrote two books that I have both of them for you. This first one is called Delighting in the Trinity. I think that's, you should start with this one, Delighting in the Trinity. Now, this book won the um, Preacher Survey Best Book for Preachers in 2012, the year it came out. This book is erudite, it's learned. He's a really good theologian, but what you're going to find is um, it's highly accessible, it's winsome, it's playful, and, and not, in a, not in a careless sense, not like that. Um, he really, he does theology like, you know, a seven-year-old on Christmas morning, that type of thing, like theology should be done. He does that. Uh, and what you'll find in this book is, is just like where that voice should be for talking about deep, gripping things of God to the life of the church, to the church for the life of the church. This is a wonderful, wonderful model of that. So I commend it to you just, gosh, with the highest praise. Excellent book. Read this one first, if you would. And then along with it, right after it. They're meant to go together. Um, Christ Our Life is the one I have. This is a little bit earlier Paternoster edition. Um, mine's called Christ Our Life. It's the exact same book. Yours is called Rejoicing in Christ, and it's IVP Academic. They're meant to go together. They're lovely. 
and let them, let them um, complement and amplify all the things we'll be talking about between here and the Revive Conference, which is, uh, I don't have the calendar before us or the schedule, but I, I want to say that's the, near the end of October. So between now, that, that's, that's easily done, right? But between now and October, you just make sure you're reading these. Okay. So, Sophia has those for you. <clears throat> and let's go. Let me pray. The Lord be with you. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, Blessed Trinity. We're so grateful uh, that in uh, your kindness, Father, you have sent a son to pursue us, um, to give himself even to Golgotha, to love us all the way to Golgotha, to make us his own, to bring us to you, Holy Father and to give us a share in a sonship, in the spirit of adoption. Praise be to you. Help us to continue to push in further up and further in into our calling. Give us all that we need. Give to us, Father, all that we need to live out our callings well. Withhold from us in your wisdom uh, the, the impediments that are there, known and unknown, uh, even the things that we lack the wisdom not to ask for, in your kindness, withhold from us. In your generosity, give to us all things uh, needed to rejoice in you well and to be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fount of every blessing. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, you guys ready? Reality in Christ, part one. We're going to talk about a three-part. We're talking about reality here. Um, <clears throat> we're going to talk about how Jesus Christ opens up the life of God. And you see the text right at the top there, right? Jesus Christ is before all things. In the beginning, right? We talked about that. We'll talk about it again. But there's also hierarchically before all things, superior to all things. In him, all things hold together so that in everything he might be preeminent. That's what we've been talking about. And that's what we're going to start to continue to demonstrate. And before we get there, let me set a little bit of a context or a foil for us about um, what's going on in terms of Christian formation and the modern fragmentation that you see so salient. The fragmentation that you see so saliently in modernity. Has that escaped any of you? We live in a world that's really broken. Really broken. Let me put a couple of those things before you. These are the things we want to see um, we want to have the wherewithal to speak to, to do it with holy boldness, holy swagger even, right? Not, not pretense, but like really well-founded confidence in our Lord Jesus to speak well to these things. We have a loss of a meta-narrative, right? A grand overarching story. That's one of the things that marks the contemporary landscape. There's a loss of meta-narrative, and what that tends to mean is that we don't have, what it does mean is we don't have a story culturally that incorporates our stories into it and interpret it, interprets our stories for us. We don't tend to have that. So what we, what we have in its place is a bunch of isolated, redu reduced stories, right? The stories we tell, only we tell, um, and they become sacrosanct for us. And you've seen this, right? You, you know that you, boy, you run into trouble fast in our culture if you critique anyone's story because it's, it's the holy of holies, right? It's the holy of holies. That's what we have. As soon as a meta-narrative go, goes, um, 
we don't have anything there. And then we think our personhood is rooted in our own, the telling of our own stories that cannot be critiqued. So we have that. That's big. We have a notion of the solitary self as a, what I like to call the datum point, the controlling principle of knowing. We tend to think that knowing starts here, right? If, if you could say, you know, the trajectory of, the, yeah, the trajectory of things, we've moved from a, a geocentric universe, all things revolving around the earth, to a heliocentric revolving around the sun, to an egocentric revolving around us. I think, therefore, I am, by the way. We've, we've come by, or that's, that's, that's uh, Rene Descartes. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. You see it right there. The knowing of all things, self-knowing, but even the knowing of God, starts here and is controlled here. All, all the mechanisms and standards for, for discerning things, the criteria that pass the muster, is one I put out there. The solitary self. We become really, really lonely and really, really confused that way and fragmented. The pro proliferation of what we call perspectives, right? There's endless perspectives on things without any real way, culturally, to assess boundaries or, or values to those perspectives. It's so tiresome. Do you guys feel that? It's so tiresome. Um, what I like to call the flatter society that is modern secularism. What I mean here is what, what's happened with the Enlightenment is we have effectively, operatively, ripped Earth from heaven and then taken the, the vertical dimensions of Earth, as it were, pressed them down flat, right? Plus, pressed them down flat so that we're not talking about creation. By the way, a creation that's perforated with heaven but creation that is isolated um, and reduced to nature, right? Creation and nature are a little bit different. Reduced to nature, and then nature is mechanized and made to be purposeless, lacking divine order, so that we can repurpose and rename almost anything. You guys see that, right? One of the things we need to talk about now is, is reapprehending re what we call a sacramental universe, right? where Jesus Christ actually brings heaven to bear upon earth, time to bear upon eternity. Um, modern secularism operates as a, a sort of flat earth society. And then what we might call the dogmatism of, dark, of doubt, Cartesian anxiety. Um, we tend to operate in our culture, modernity does, with a question mark over almost everything. It makes us real suspicious, and if we're not careful, real cynical, but we tend to doubt almost everything except maybe our own personal narratives, if that's the criteria for knowing. Um, we'll even romanticize doubt. What it does is it just fractures and fract it just fractures our landscape, and by the way, that's some of the reason, that Cartesian anxiety, some of the anxiety that everybody's talking about right now, right? Everybody's talking about lack of resilience and all that. It comes from the fatigue of being like Atlas, trying to hold up the world as, with a solitary self, which is absolutely crushing. Right? Self-lordship, boy, there's a heavy price to pay for self-lordship. Does that make sense? It's part of the fractured, fractious way in which modernity is. In that context, what we want to talk about, the good news, 
is that reality is one in Jesus Christ. God the Son entered the world as the Son of Man to the end that God, humanity, man, and the world, right? Creator, creation, and the human creature have their full and final concrete definitive disclosure in him. All things hold together in him. That's the way scripture talks. Man, that's service to the world. If we can, that, that's a magnificent gospel message. Jesus Christ reveals not many realities, nor one reality with all kinds of various perspectives and means um, to it, of access to it, but a grand glorious reality that can only be discerned rightly, ultimately relative to himself. That's what we want to talk about. And we'll, we'll take three sessions together to do it. Any outlook that doesn't see and savor all things in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ in all things isn't a truly Christian outlook on reality, the things we've just been talking about. It's not Christian, whatever else it might be, it's not that. It's a self-styled construct of a virtual reality. And by the way, we're getting more and more comfortable with virtual realities, right? It's an abstract, it's pulled from the really real, right? It's pulled from that abstract, right? Um, pulled from that and it becomes vacuous and hollow whatever else it is, anything that you're going to pull from Jesus Christ in whom all things hold together, you're going to start to, you're going to lose meaning because you can't tell what, what, the, what it means and what purpose it serves. He, says Paul, Colossians, he, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the icon of God, right? Jesus Christ is the sacrament of God the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and earth, by him. It's a triune reality, but Jesus Christ mediates the creation of all things, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Anything that is, that is abstracted from Jesus Christ is an, is an object, is, a, is a, uh, an exercise in thievery, right? All things were made for him to find their fullness in him. Anything that you abstract from him becomes opaque or transparent. And it's, it's theft, it's a form of theft, right? By him, through him, for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. You see what Paul did? He's before all things. He's talking about, cre he's, he's talking about the realm of creation. Now Paul says he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the grave and before all things in terms of redemption, recreation. Does that make sense? the constitution of the world and the reconstitution of the world in Jesus Christ, that in everything he might preeminent, be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now look what Paul does. I'm going to skip over from Colossians 1. If you see on page 2, I'm going to skip over to Colossians 2 and what Paul says here. This is his prayer. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, how great a struggle I have for 
Uh, Gregory House, Ascension Year, 2020, September 3rd. Gregory House, North and South. How great a struggle I have. You who haven't seen me face to face, what end does my ministry serve? That your heart, that your hearts may be encouraged, that courage be put in your bones. Being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery. Who is Jesus Christ? For it's in him that are hidden all the treasures and the wisdom of knowledge. What do we want to do for these next three sessions? Talk about how, how reality is found in Jesus Christ relative to knowledge of God, knowledge of self, knowledge of humanity, and knowledge of the world so that we learn how to enjoy Jesus Christ in all things and all things in Jesus Christ. And we can sing that song in the church and that song to the world because that's what theology does as her service to the world. So look here at um, the church's witness, that second part I have for you on page two. What this is, is I just, I just I want you to hear the voice of the church, right? You've heard apostolic voice by Paul. Listen to the voice of the church. Vladimir Lasky, great Orthodox theologian, Russian theologian. All that we know of the Trinity, we know through the incarnation, he says. What he means is, um, it's Jesus Christ who has placed the name, not three names, the name of Father, Son, Spirit on our lips and in our hearts. The church sings that song. Jesus Christ put it there. All that we know of the Trinity, we know through the incarnation. Calvin, Institutes of the Christian Religion. It is certain that humankind, man, never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face. Gosh, I love that. First gaze upon that holy face, the face of true, full, authentic humanity, that one who is bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh, and then begin to contemplate us and scrutinize us and find all that we ought be and all that we aren't, right? He's the criteria for that, says Calvin. My favorite American theologian. I can't say, I can't say enough good about John Williamson Nevin. The incarnation's the key. He says it unlocks the sense of all God's revelations. This is the key that unlocks the sense of all God's works and brings to light the true meaning of the universe. All things were made by him and through him and for him so that he can manifestly be preeminent in all things. The incarnation is the great central fact of the world, he says. Hans Urs von Balthasar, terrific Roman Catholic theologian, he says this, myth is unmasked by the word of God. That's the, that's the, <laughs> the heavy uprooting work of the incarnation. Moderns tend to think that it's pre-modern people who are surrounded by mythology and, and we live with no mythologies. Our modern landscape, we're up to our eyeballs in mythologies. They're all over the place. Von Balthasar says, it's actually this one, the incarnate word, who does that heavy lifting of undercutting Right? And it's a holy work and it's a merciful work. Undercut, demythologize the world so that the world can know reality in Christ Jesus. It's the word of God who does that. 
And then this. This is a bit longer quote, but I want you to hear it. It's Bonhoeffer. The reality of God is not just another idea. It's not an idea at all. Christian faith perceives this in the fact that the reality of God has revealed itself and witness to itself in the midst of the real world. In Jesus Christ, the reality of God has entered the reality of the world. The place, says Bonhoeffer, where the questions about God and about the world are answered at one and the same time is characterized solely by the name Jesus Christ. God and the world are enclosed in this name. We cannot speak rightly of either God or the world without speaking and speaking rightly about Jesus Christ. All concepts, all mental constructs, he means, of reality that ignore Jesus Christ are abstractions. There aren't two realities, but only one, and that is God's reality revealed in Christ amidst the reality of the world. The reality of Christ embraces the reality of the world in itself. Listen to this. The world has no independent or no reality of its own independent of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. This is what he means in a nutshell. The world isn't isn't possessed of um, life in itself. The world lives, right, in the one who is the light of men, the life and light of the world. The world has no independent life or independent intelligibility apart from God and Jesus Christ. So what we don't do, right, is we don't say, well, because we can touch and measure and and easily perceive the world, its meaning is manifestly um, obvious to us, and so much so, independently of God, and so much so, it's so solid that way that it becomes a criteria for knowing God. If you're not careful there, you'll start to talk about God, like a Yeti or a Sasquatch or the Tooth Fairy. That couldn't be further from the truth. It's actually God, right, about whom there's nothing squishy, nothing iffy. He is the one who reveals the reality of the world. Apart from him, the world is, we can't get at it. We live in it, we can't get at it. It's purposeless, it's meaningless. And look around, look around. It is a denial of God's revelation, continues Bonhoeffer, in Jesus Christ, to wish to be Christian without being worldly. You hear what he's doing? We enjoy all things in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ in all things. The world and God are enclosed in the name. The reality of the world and the reality of God enclosed in the name Jesus Christ. To be truly Christian is to be truly worldly in that the knowledge of God is immersed and situated for us in the world. Not of the world, in it. In it. To be truly Christian means that we don't withdraw or retract from the world, but we can now engage the world. Or two, he says, to wish to be worldly without seeing and recognizing the world in Christ. You cannot immerse yourself in the things of the world and do it well and not be assimilated to the world without doing it in Jesus Christ. To be in Christ, now you can go into the world and be worldly in that sense. But you can't love Jesus Christ rightly and retract from the world or seek to gain the world apart from Jesus Christ. You'll lose the world that way. Hence, 
There are not two realms, but only one, the one realm of the Christ reality in which the reality of God and the reality of the world are united. That's what we're talking about. That's a pretty good thing to talk about, yeah? Everything, reality. So let's go. To begin at the beginning, I'm right on top of page three there. To begin at the beginning, yet understand backwards. Let me unpack that a little bit. That's part of the the adventure, the pilgrimage that theology is too. Kierkegaard says, wonderfully, wonderfully. We only understand life backwards, but we must live forwards. Have you guys noticed that in your own life? The events of the events of your life situation don't carry and reveal their own meaning in the events themselves. Lots of times, right? We walk, we walk by faith. The scripture tells us to do, right? We walk by faith, not by sight in this way. So we live into the world, um, and as we do, life seems circuitous and, and baffling, downright baffling sometimes. It's, it's in retrospect that we come to understand these things. I want to show you that that's, the way you that's what you see in Scripture, and that's even what you see in the life of Israel. Israel lives forward. The, the experience of Israel is a living forward and understanding backward in Jesus Christ. That's what you see in Scripture. We understand the Old Testament in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we see, as he teaches us, right, um, that the witness of prophets and apostles, the law, right, um, bears witness to him, and he is its proper end, right? So you're going to see that all the way throughout. You see this all, all, all over the place in life, right? On the day you get married, a couple of, some of you are married, and you're never more married than on the day you get married. You're not more married on your 50th wedding anniversary than on the day you're married. But we would hope, right, you'd look backward and say, oh, wow, that's what that meant. I had such a small meaning or such a small understanding of what that meant. You're never more authentically a human person than on the day of your birth. You barely have a sense of self-awareness at that point. You're not more human on your 10th or 20th or 50th birthday than you are on your first birthday in your birthday suit. You're not more human. But your understanding of what it means to be human is, wow, hopefully much better, right? Much, much better. You must live forward and you understand backwards. That's, that's good wisdom, really good wisdom. So let's talk about that beginning at the beginning. Look at what John does first part of his gospel. We looked at it um, in our first session. In the beginning was the word, that word who was with God and was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And that life is the light of men. Now, first three words of John's gospel, in the beginning. What is that? What is that what is that, what is that meant to do literarily? Gosh, I've heard that before. Where have I heard that in the beginning? How about Genesis 1? John wants to take us there. John's going to tell us what Genesis 1 means in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. I have that text for you right here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how scripture starts in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the progress of revelation, now we can say, Oh, all things were made by Jesus Christ in the beginning, right? By, at this time, the one who is yet to be incarnate, 
right? But the Word who is eternal. All things were made by Him, things visible, things invisible. They were made by Him. They were made through Him. They were made for Him. This is why the world exists and how the world exists. That's what John wants us to do. The earth was without form and void, says Genesis, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. Go back, just put your finger up right above that. Look again at John's Gospel. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Let there be light. What's Genesis talking about? We understand these things backward. Before all creaturely existence, before the creation of time itself, before the creation of time itself, when scripture says in the beginning, right? Language is timed. We don't have, we don't have an experience or even a way to think, gosh, it's hard to get our grasp on that. Before time, this is what the Nicene Creed is going to tell us about, but it's really important that we get at this. Before all creaturely existence, before the creation of time itself, there was the eternal uncreated life and light who is God, the Holy Trinity. And there was the Word, the second person of the Trinity with God as God. Before the creation of time itself, time is a creature of God, a good creature of God. It's fallen now. It operates fallenly. It needs to be redeemed too in the redemption of all things. Why is this so important? We'll get at this. Nicaea speaks to this. We'll keep pressing in, but I want you to think about this right now. Scripture wants to tell us that God creates all things, even time, and before time was, God was. Why? Because Scripture wants us never to think that time is some impersonal abstraction that has eternally existed alongside God, and God kind of happened upon it and wants to figure out how to use it. That's not what eternity is. What is eternity, then? Have you guys ever thought about eternity like that, by the way? This is eternity, this long, unending unfolding of chronology. And that's where you're going to be. Where a million years is, a billion years is like a second. Tell me you haven't thought about that. And it's like, I'm not sure I want that. It's, it's arid and it's barren and it's desolate and it's scary. That's not what eternity is. Before the creation of time itself, Jesus, God, the triune God being the Lord of time, before the creation of time itself, there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is eternity? The way in which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are with one another in holy koinonia forever. What is the eternal life that Jesus Christ brings? It's not just the, un- the unending unfolding of chronology. By the way, it's, it's now. Right? The, the, the eternal life you are now experiencing, it is life in Jesus Christ in the bosom of the Father and the koinonia of the Spirit. This is eternity. <clears throat> the Nicene Creed heralds this word as the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time, light from light, God from God, true God from, true God, from true God, begotten, not created of the same essence, the same reality as the Father. Nicaea, right? Because it's pastoral. It wants to tell us that that's the meaning of time, that the word was with the Father in the bosom of the Father. I think about this. It's, man, it's so fun. The procreation of human persons bodily, this is true of all of us, 
occurs in time results in external relations between the begetter and the begotten. I love my mother, right? Um, there's, there's external relations going on there. The father's begetting of the son, non-bodily. Eternal, an internal act within God's life whereby the father and the son are one in deity, distinct in their uniqueness. As father and son, everything that is true of the son is true of the father except son because that distinguishes the way in which he relates to the father. Everything is true of the father that is true of the son except father. That is the relational distinction there. With the father and the unity of the spirit, the son participates truly, eternally, fully, unreservedly in God's holy life of love so that we have an inseparability of persons and an inseparability of divine acts. What God does, and all God does, he does his Father, Son, and Spirit, right? All God does, he does his Father, Son, and Spirit with differentiation between the triune persons in terms of the Father doesn't die on the cross, nor is he merely observing the cross from a distance. In him, says Paul, God was in Christ, the Father, in this context, reconciling the world to himself. So what does this mean? With God as God, this word is God's self-expression. That's who he is. God's inner life and light. You're going to read about this. Michael Reeves does this wonderfully. Why does something exist rather than nothing? Because the, the eternal joy of who God is, as Father, Son, and Spirit, and the fullness of God's joy, he said, let us make mankind in our image so that we can bring an uncountable number into the joy of Jesus Christ's sonship. Sons and daughters in the Son. You see how God loves? God loves outgoing. It's outgoing. It's explosive. It's celebratory. Right? There's a reason why C.S. Lewis pictures for us Aslan creating by song. He's walking back and forth, and he's singing, right? In the fullness of this joy, let us let, let the joy of the Lord explode outward and outward and effulgent, fecundity, procreative, right? And let all things come to be so that all things can be summed up in this blessed Son, who is the self-expression of God. All things were made by him. And his life and light, the inner life and light of the triune God explodes outward in self-giving love. He speaks all things into existence as the uncreated word enacts the creation of the cosmos. Creation, as scripture then tells us, is from the Father through the Son. He's the agent and heir. He's the origin and aim of all things, all things. And that's why we can say, you guys, that we inhabit a universe rather than an endless pluriverse or multiverse. We live in a universe, why? Because all things hold together in Jesus Christ. There's, there's continuity, there's design, there's intent there, and it's discerned in the Lord Jesus. The logic of creation. He has the, lo the logos is the logic of creation. We're gonna begin at the beginning and we're gonna understand backwards. The beginning of the gospel, in the beginning. Remember I said that the gospel, is, Jesus Christ is the theologic and we're gonna think about him according to the theologic of the gospel. That's exactly what we're doing here. It's just what we're doing.
Now let's think about him in terms of um, him being the word of Israel, the word of the Old Testament. Remember, you must live forward and you understand backwards. It's true of our lives. It's true of the world. It's true of the people of Israel. It's true of the Old Testament. The word who spoke all things to existence is present to his creation from its very beginning. And he remains that even when, a world, even when we have a cosmos broken by sin and flight from God. God's holy. Never think that that means that God is debarred um, from that which is unholy. He's captive to his holiness. You know, we talk sometimes like that. I sinned. God's holy. God can't come near me. Goodness gracious. All of scripture moves against that. The holy one comes near, right? His holiness doesn't debar him from relationship. It actually just tells us how in his holiness he comes after a people and initiates a relationship and maintains it and perfects it. Right, the Holy One in the midst of Israel, who is the Holy One in our flesh, who loves to come touching lepers, right? And the Pharisees say, how could he, being holy, be with that person, touch that person, do that? Because everything he touches, he transforms. Does that make sense? He refuses to relinquish the object of his holy love to dissolution and death. Athanasius on the incarnation. So good there right off the bat. God refuses to abandon that which he loves. Even when it's, even when it's broken by sin. So this same word who enacts the creation of the cosmos, cosmos enacts its recreation and its fulfilling. Now you see this. We're not going to spend a ton of time here, but I just want you to see this. He does this throughout Israel's life. Why is this so important right off the bat theologically? Because we never want to think like this. You know the Bible. Well, the New Testament talks about Jesus. The Old Testament talks about God, right? Um, the New Testament has a way of salvation. The Old Testament has a way of salvation. The New Testament has a purpose and a telos. The Old Testament has a purpose and a telos. God seems really nice in the Old Testament. I'm not so sure about that. Or in the New Testament, I'm not so sure about that. He's really gracious in the New Testament. I'm not so sure about that in the Old what we do is we actually rip apart scripture so that we don't have two testaments there. We have two Bibles, two gods, two economies of God, two gospels, two logics of God, two different telos of God. Does that make sense? Yuck. Jesus Christ is the substance of the Old Testament. He's bringing brought to the fore. What I want you to just think about with me here for a few minutes is the words intimate involvement in the life of Israel. Abraham's offspring at the Red Sea, at Mount Sinai, right? He abides with them in their sojourn. He abides with them in their settlement. He's on the lips of the, of the priests and the prophets, right? Who do they have to do with? And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Are we talking about some, you know, abstracted utterance of God, some message, some impersonal message of God? And the word of the Lord on the prophet's lips. Who's speaking to Israel? What word? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, you have it right here. For I do not want you to be unaware. Don't be unaware of this. 
that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and they all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. And they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Messiah, Mashiach, right? That's who he was. Who does Israel have to do with? The mediator, right? The eternal word in the bosom of the Father who is to be incarnate in our flesh. The Holy One of Israel who will be the Holy One in our flesh. Concerning this, this salvation, First Peter says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them. Who's speaking through the prophets? The Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in his subsequent glories. I want you to think about this, right? When Moses says, Exodus 32, show me your glory, God says, you can't see my face yet. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will pronounce my glory to you. This is what John in his prologue is getting at. He keeps contrasting um, the coming of Jesus or, or, or thinking about the coming of Jesus relative to Moses. No one has seen God, says John, but the Son who is in the bosom of the Father has exegeted him. Let me tell you a little bit about Old Testament backgrounds. It's so cool what's going on there. In the Holy of Holies, the tent of meeting where God communes with Israel, right? It says, I will be there. There's no guesswork. If you want to find me, this is where I am. Don't go to the Asherah poles. Don't go any of those places. Come here and I promise right? Um, my presence is undergirded with a promise. I will commune with you here. In the Holy of Holies, or in the, in the, at the tent of meeting, in the Holy of Holies, right, the epicenter of where God shows his glory in the Old Testament, there's the Ark of the Covenant. What's in it? The words of God, right? The word of God inscribed with the finger of God. In the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the, in the place of meeting where God shows his glory in the Old Testament. This is what John's getting at. Jesus Christ, that word who is forever in the bosom of the Father, that word who resounds in the very depths into the grounds of God's being, he has exegeted God. This is the one with whom you have to do. And he is, by the way, God of Israel. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's, that's who he is. Through temple and tabernacle, through law and liturgy, the word of God dwelt in the midst of Israel, his visage slowly emerging. Then at last, right out of the womb of Israel, son of Mary, son of Abraham, son of David, son of Rahab. <laughs> the word came forth in our flesh to reveal the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Reality of God in Christ. Jesus Christ embodies the innermost reality of who God is. That self-same word who's ever been in the bosom of the Father, who's ever resided in the heart of the Father's being, makes him known to us. And what Jesus, you see, you see it all over, right? All of the New Testament. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? On the road to Emmaus. And he 
and he opens up, as it were, for the, the two dejected disciples. We, we had hoped that he was the one to restore Israel. And he says, this is how the law and the prophets, right, bear witness to me. And they discern him in the breaking of the bread, right? So what's going on in the life of Israel? Israel has to live forward. They have to go through Sinai and the Red Sea, right? The sojourn, the settlement. Israel lives forward. We understand, Israel understands herself backward. Just like you understand yourself backward, just like John 1.1 talks about Genesis 1.1. You live forward, you understand backward, and you understand by the word. Does that make sense? Do you got, let me stop, because I want to I get a drink of coffee. Do you guys want to say anything? Yeah. Oh, Sophia, I thought that was you. Hello. Oh, wow. Um, I guess my, my question would be, uh, Aquinas would want to say that um, the Father was capable of becoming incarnate and the Spirit was capable of becoming incarnate. Otherwise, there wouldn't be God. Would you want to say that the Father, given that the Father always reveals himself at, in and through the Word, and that the Word is the self-expression of the Father, that the Father always acts to reveal himself in and through the Word, and that it couldn't be any other way? I'm pausing because I want to say about 8,000 things at once. Um, short answer, yes. I think you can say that because um, when we talk about what God can do, right, the, omnis the, the omnipotence of God, we never want to talk in terms of, well, God can do anything. If God can do anything, right, he, he can call evil good tomorrow. That, oh, that's monstrous. We never say something like that. God's, God's actions are bound to, the, to, to his being and to his character, right? And so what God commits himself to, he does. So there's a way in which we could say, could the Father have done this? Could the Father have done this? Could, the, could creation have been another way? So on and so forth, right? And that's what the medievals love to do that. They love to ask those questions. They get tanked for it, you know, in retrospect. Could God have saved the world had he become incarnate through a donkey? That's a question. And we'd say, oh dear, are we seriously gonna talk about that? Well, it's worth talking about in this way. What then would salvation be? If what God wanted to do was um, exercise his frustration, well, he could have kicked a fence post. But an incarnation, or, or, or coming in a donkey, isn't human. It doesn't, it doesn't redeem the human to its humanness, right? There's wonderful things to talk about there. So we could talk like that. I think the short answer is yes, but I think what you always want to do there is say, what did God do, right? That's the best way, or else we're, we're into, again, right, late, late medieval, not so much Aquinas, but people who came after him. Can God make a stone so big he can't lift it? And you think, gosh, what, what God's omnipotence means is what God has done in the carrying out of God's promises. Does that make sense? So I think, I think, I think we could talk like that, but I think that you are on good and solid ground to say, God always wishes to reveal himself through the mediator in the economy of God. That's true of Israel's life because it glorifies God to, to mission the Son in this way. 
And when you talk about the love of God, how, how God loves to, there's no jealousy in God, right? The, the son loves to come in the name of the father. He doesn't have any kind of understanding of himself apart from the father. Um, he loves to be, he loves to manifest the father so that even as the son has given all things, he wishes to give all glory to his father. But I, I think, I think as far as, as you go, that's right. What's your name? John? Sean. John, another form of John, right? <laughs> or John's another form of John. Uh, yeah. Does that help? Yeah. But I think we do want to say, because God is triune and therefore always does all things triunely, I think it's, we're on really good grounds to say, the way in which God wishes to be and to be known is to be known in Jesus Christ. Not him abstracted from the Father, but that the Father's known in the Son. Anything else? Okay, further up, further in. Let's talk about Jesus Christ and the triune life of God. What we're really settling here is how Jesus Christ manifests reality in this, in this instance relative to God, knowledge of God. No one else but Jesus Christ has placed the triune name of Father, Son, and Spirit in the heart and on the lips and in the minds of the church but Jesus. He's done that, right? Go into all the world teaching all the things that I taught you with this sign, right? The sign of baptism. Because all authority has been given to me. And do this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, right? Father, Son, and the Spirit. Let's think about that a little bit, how Jesus Christ manifests the life of God. So we're never talking about a Jesus Christ who's somehow abstracted from him. There's such tremendous pastoral cruelty that happens there. If you could, you know, as it were, pull Jesus Christ from the life of God. Could you imagine that? Insofar as we do that, what we'd say is, there's a God behind the back and over the head of Jesus Christ that may be in some sense manifest in Jesus Christ, but he's ultimately different than Jesus Christ. He's ultimately other than Jesus Christ. Then who is he? What kind of knowledge of God do we have? We want to make sure that's the glory of Nicaea. Who is Jesus Christ? Homoousion with the Father. Manifestation of the Father in the power of the Spirit. So let's get at that a little bit. Knowledge of God is the fruit of the Father opening up God's inner triune life to us through the Son and in the Spirit and by the Spirit. God makes his, himself known that way so that we experience, we experience a mystery, right? Like Paul says, Paul hasn't yet seen the Galatians. He writes ahead to them and he says, it's by the spirit of adoption because you belong to Christ that you cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father is the way Jesus talks about his father, right? Dear Father. Paul says, you do that too because you have the spirit of adoption and that is the experience of being redeemed. When, when God has opened up his inner triune life this way, this is your experience of God. Paul's assuming that, just assuming it. That is the life of, of the people of God. A mystery that's so profound, right? So broad and deep that we can't span or plummet but true and real, and we can know and live in and experience it, say true things, live in light of the truth there. 
<clears throat> That's what's happened to us. Jesus Christ is the word ever one with the Father, who is ever with the Father, in the Father, so that when the Father sends the Son into the world, the Father doesn't send the Son away from himself, but the Father draws near to us in and through the Son. And if you read John's Gospel, for instance, I don't speak on my own authority. I don't act on my own authority. All that I've seen my Father do, I, I do. If you don't believe me, watch my works. It's not me who does them, but the Father who does them in me. Philip, how long have you been with me? Look upon my face. To see me is to see the Father. Not because I'm the Father disguised as a son. Not that. But because I am, as the book of Hebrews would say, right? I am the express image and nature of the Father. To know me and to see me. To humanly apprehend the reality of God now coming to you as human and mediated to you as human. This is to know God. That's what it means to know God. So, Jesus Christ comes to make the Father known. That's so pastorally profound. What does it mean to know God? It means to know Jesus. What does it mean to have the Father? This is the language of First John, right? To have the Son is to have the Father. That's what it means. To have not the Son is what it means not to have the Father. To see and to hear and to know the Son is to see and to hear and to know the Father. That's what that means. The Father comes near to us in the sending of the Son. This is what, after, this is what Irenaeus says at the bottom of page four. The Father is the invisible of the Son, but the Son is the visible of the Father. He's just echoing the language of Colossians there, right? Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He's the icon of the Father. He's the icon of God. Let's, let's go broader than that. He's the icon of God. He's the sacrament of God. Yes? That's why later on we can say, and the church is the sacrament of Jesus. And he's given gospel sacraments to the church and so on and so forth. We can say it because of what we're saying right here. Now, what about the spirit? Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. To see the Father is to see the Son. Jesus Christ came to, at one and the same time, to make the Spirit known because Jesus Christ acts in the power of the Spirit, bestows the Spirit in his name, right? And discloses the Spirit's ministry relative to himself. So think about this. Jesus says, I come in the name of the Father, in the name of the Father, right? Um, I come to bring to you the very character, the will, the mission of my Father. Now Jesus says, the Spirit, who comes in my name? The Spirit comes in the name of the Son. What does the Spirit do? Jesus tells us, he takes what is mine and makes manifest to you. He does not speak on his own authority. But I don't. Jesus would say, I don't speak on my own authority. I speak on the authority of my Father. The Spirit doesn't speak on his own authority. He takes what is mine and gives it to you. He glorifies me. He puts me on show. Now think about this. When you think about discernment, by the way, which is a, which is a ministry of the Spirit, discernment. 
how do we discern the Holy Spirit from unholy spirits? John tells us in his epistles, how do we, we test the spirit, the spirits, relative to what they bear witness to the incarnate word? Has Jesus Christ come in the flesh? Does that spirit, whatever spirit you're testing, bear witness to that? Because that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. Does that make sense? By the way, even on top of that, have you ever noticed this? Where do you, where do you start to see you know, just a tremendous uptick in demonic activity in Scripture. It's not the epistles, right? It's not the law, the prophets. It's the gospels, right? Why? Because when Aslan's afoot, he exposes all the unclean spirits. He does it, right? He brings to light the darkness. The way to, the way to discern the spirits is relative to Jesus Christ because the spirit is known, not on his own and not on his own authority, but always relative to Jesus Christ. We're Trinitarian people. Jesus Christ came to make the spirit known. He bestows the spirit. He discloses the ministry of the spirit relative to himself so that he is no less the visible of the Spirit than he is the visible of the Father. When Philip says, show us the Father and it's enough, Jesus says, Philip, if you see me, you see the Father. We might be tempted to ask, right, moderns, and, and it's a good question. Jesus, show us the Spirit and it's enough. If you see me as it is, right, if you discern me, if you embrace me, you have seen the Spirit who comes in my name and my authority to take what is mine and give to you to glorify me. That's what the Spirit does and who the Spirit is. Jesus Christ is the visible of the Spirit. And he reveals that knowledge of the Son by the Spirit and knowledge of the Spirit through the Son are the same thing, right? To behold the Son is to behold the Spirit. We'd say that about Jesus Christ relative to, to the Father. Knowledge of the Son from the Father, knowledge of the Father through the Son, one and the same. That's what Jesus tells us. The same is true of the Spirit. Michael Ramsey, Archbishop of Canterbury, days gone by. He writes this. You have it in your notes. It's wonderful. God is Christ-like, and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. There's nothing unchristlike in God. There's nothing unchristlike in the Father, and there's nothing unchristlike in the Spirit. Because, because the whole, this is the language of Scripture, because the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. He's not an aspect of God, right? One third of God. Um, he's not a perspective on God. He's not a vague approximation of God. He's the visible of the invisible God in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus Christ is the knowledge of God. Yay, that's who he is. So that all that God's ever been in his inner triune life, he is to us in the incarnate son and in us in the spirit, that's who he is. He's Emmanuel. The transcendent reality of God in the beginning now brought to us and evermore to be with us in him. Now, big pastoral takeaway here. 
big pastoral takeaway. There's no search to be undertaken for God. There's no appeal to be made to God over the head or behind the back of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense to you guys? None. Who is God? He's exactly who you get in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there another God behind, behind the back of Jesus Christ? No. Is there a different God behind the back of Jesus Christ? Good Lord, no. Who would that be? And we'd be saying God is unknowable ultimately. We'd be agnostic at best and terrified if, we're, if we have any wits about us at all. We'd be terrified of that. God is exactly who he is and exactly like he is in Jesus Christ, in whom there, in whom there is no unchristlikeness at all. Let me say a couple things. Then I want to talk with you guys. I hope you have lots to talk about. When we talk about Trinity, God is Trinity. You hear that a lot around here, right? Hopefully a lot, because that's the song we sing, because that's the theology that, we, that is set to song. The Trinity is not merely a cute way of thinking and speaking about God. It's not something that we devised, an intellectual construct, a handle, an ideational handle that we've put on God to tame and manage God. The Trinity and the way we speak forth about the Trinity is the result of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit in doing holy invasion and incursion into the life of the church to take human words, right, um, and make them actual vehicles of saying true things about the reality of God. When we talk about God as Trinity, we're talking about the way God is and always has been in his inner triune life. We're not speculating, but we're speaking in a response to revelation, saying things we could never say unless God opened up his life to us in creation and redemption. Him having done that, we cry out, Father, Son, Spirit. Not an intellectual handle, but, but, but the reality of who God is. Now, that being the case, how important is this when we think about what theology does? We talk a lot about God, right, in our culture. You guys have read, you know, the, the way people talk, you know. So many moderns, we, we, you know, we talk about God as, um, oh, what is it? Um, moralistic therapeutic deism. The undifferentiated God. God, 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 God. Now, that's not the God of Holy Scripture, right? If Trinity... If Trinity is who God really is, then unless our language and our thinking and our preaching and our proclaiming isn't Trinitarian, then we're bearing witness to some other God, not the God of Scripture. You see how important that is? And when we lose the language of theology and we don't keep theological verbiage freighted with theological content, how far are we from saying things like this? You'd never hear this, right? The triune God of the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the church, and Allah are the same God. You can only say that if you think at best the Trinitarian reality of God is something that God picks up and puts down like you might your car keys. That's a denial that God is Trinity. Right? God is intermittently Trinity. That's something that has to do with God, but it certainly isn't of God's being. It's some intellectual construct. You've never heard that before, I know. Right? We can't, remember what we talked about last session? The church can't do her mission without theology. 
Does that make sense? So it would be, it'd be a scandal, wouldn't us, for go, to go, to, go um, to Islamic peoples and say, did you know that the God we bear witness to and Allah is the same? And you know what they say? No, he's not. <laughs> right? No, he's not. They're clear as a bell on that. You don't do missions confused like that. The triune God of the gospel is essentially triune. The God we speak about is triune, right? It's of his very essence. Now, let me say this. Trinity is the chief attribute of God. We talk like that. Before, before you want to say anything else about God, you want to say God's Trinity. Because there's a lot of other things we want to say about God, right? God's holy. God is love. God is almighty, right? All-knowing. Um, and so on and so forth. God is free, by the way, right? God is free and unimpeded to be his lordly self. All those things we want to say about God. We don't say those prior to or apart from saying God's trinity or else, or else we'd be really, really tempted, even if we don't mean it, like, you know, we don't really think it through. What it suggests is that all these things are true of the Father, let's say, but the Son and the Spirit are some kind of subordinate quasi-deities. All these things are true about the Father, but maybe, or, you know, to some extent, to some degree, they're true of the Son and the Spirit, but they're not true of the Son and the Spirit per se, or, or, or not like we would say of the Father. Or else, we're talking about some kind of undifferentiated um, Unitarian deity, right? The God, again, of moralistic therapeutic deism. If we start by saying God is Trinity, then everything else we're going to say about God means this is true of Father, Son, and Spirit. Wholly true, fully true, authentically true, right? That's, what, that's the, so much of what that, article, that chapter that I had you guys read or asked you to read. And I don't know if you did it or you don't have to already. You can do it afterward. But so much of that deals with that very, that very issue. That's one of the just beauties of the church's proclamation that we can say, um, because God is Trinity, first and foremost, right? That's of the very nature and essence and reality of God. And that really helps us think about what it means that God is free and holy and loving and so on and so forth. Does that make sense? Do you guys want to talk about anything that, if you did read that article, um, anything you want to bring up or anything you want to discuss there? Talking about God as Trinity really helps us think about the perfections of God, the attributes of God. Yeah? Um, yeah, I guess. Um, um, would we say to, like, when we witness to uh, Jewish friends, mm -hmm. which modern Judaism does, it seems, at least most of modern Judaism seems to want to affirm God as a sort of unitarian entity, would we want to say that the triune God of the gospel, who we call Lord, who we call Adonai, is different than the God that they worship? We don't. Not different, no. No, in fact, we want to affirm that that's exactly who he is. When we talk about Jesus as Lord in just a minute, that's, that's so wonderful. Where you see that in the New Testament, Jesus is Lord. What the apostles do there is wonderful. They're actually affirming. Yahweh, Adonai, 
that's who we're talking about when we bear witness, when we proclaim Jesus as Lord, that's who we're talking about. No, not different. <clears throat> what we're saying is that it's always been God's intent to manifest himself. The, the reason the nation of Israel is, and that God called Israel, is to, for Israel to fulfill that divine vocation in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, as we'd say, right, who is the gospel first for? The Jew. And then we've been engrafted in, right? Guests in the house of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am not of, of Jewish extraction. Um, I'm a guest in the house of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I can be that because Jesus Christ has fulfilled Israel's vocation. Matthew's gospel is so awesome. There you see Jesus doing that, recapitulating Israel, understanding backwards and living forward, right? Doing that. So not a different God, not at all. The full manifestation of who God is, right? So we can say, you know, in the language of Paul and as he speaks to the Corinthians, whenever the law is read, right? Uh, and Jesus Christ, in, in light of his coming, is denied. Let's say I'm not talking verbatim here. It's like there's a veil there, right? And how is that veil lifted? In the light of the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He manifests who God is and ever has been. So, <laughs> what could we say? Because we're confused here lots of times in the church. Um, God isn't, doesn't start off um, as numerically one and, you know, with like two little buds, one being the spirit, one being the son, right? And God grows up into Trinity, doesn't do that, nor, nor is God um, divisible in his triune life. So, you know, the Old Testament, the father says to the son and the spirit, you know, you guys go, go out in the celestial driveway and shoot hoops. And I, you know, I got this. Jesus, Bethlehem, you're up. You got a long wait. Spirit, Pentecost, you're up. We see the ministry of the Spirit in Genesis 1 brooding over the waters, right? Um, he's the Lord, the giver of life. In creation and in recreation, we see the mediator, all things made by him and through him. So God is, the God of Israel is the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And Abraham looked and longed to see the fulfillment of that, right? And we now who live on the other side of the incarnation do. So we bear witness there. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess a follow up to that would be, why, because I, I think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A follow up would be, why then would we say, if a Muslim, so let's say a liberal sort of progressive Muslim yeah. says, um, you and I, we worship the same God, with the response, you know, the God of Isa is actually triune. Um, like, and so the God you want to worship, we worship in truth. Would that, that response be illegitimate to a Muslim, but legitimate to the Jewish people? I like the language you use, the God you want to worship, if eternity's in our hearts, right? Because I, I think that applies all over the place. Like Chesterton says, you know, everyone who knocks on the door of a brothel at 2 a.m. is searching for God, right? That informs our mission, right? Not no, no, no to the world, but do you know actually in the, in the ways that you're seeking that are corrupt and falling, do you know what you actually are seeking for? So we're doing, we're doing the mission of Paul in the Areopagus. 
You worship everything. You even have, you even have a monument to the unknown God. Let me tell you who that God is. That's, that's bold stuff. Let me tell you who that God is. The one you, the one you seek because you're hardwired for it. By the way, if we weren't hardwired for that, how on earth would we do mission? You don't have to create that in people. You have to summon it forth in the gospel. It's already there. Um, I think you can talk like that. I think you can. I think we just have to be really, really careful. Well, we'd want to deal with the Quran in places like that, right? And by the way, Michael Reeves does. Allah is father to no one. Allah begets no one. Well, that's a, that's a shot right across the bow of the gospel, and it's meant to be, right? Now, think about that, father to no one. God doesn't create. The father doesn't wish to create so that he can become father. He creates because he already is father. That's a big deal, right? Um, he creates because he already is father. Because the father is the father to the son, we can be included in that sonship. That's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? Allah is father to no one, and he begets no one. Well, then I can't have father there, right? And I can't be begotten there. That's a lot, right? So there are all kinds of sociological and historical connections there. I get that, I totally get that. But they gotta be sorted out theologically. Does that make sense? That's exactly what we were talking about in session one, where there can be no foundation that's laid aside for Jesus Christ. If you start with the sociological question, boy, if you don't start with the alpha, you're not gonna get to omega, just not gonna get there. Um, and so we can discern all those things. I think those, are, those can be really helpful ways to do cross-cultural ministry. How much time we got? What time are we done? 10 minutes. 10 minutes? Well, let's book that. Let me say this. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the, first, the church's first confession. That is the first confession. Oh my goodness, it's so rich and pregnant with meaning. But I want you to see it. I give you, oh boy, I've given you tons of texts where you'll see that. It's a twofold claim, at least that. It's a twofold claim. First, Jesus is Lord. It's that joyful exclamation that specifies Jesus Christ's relation to the God of Israel in the Old Testament. This is what the apostles did there. They went to the Septuagint in that title, Kurios, by which we would, we would identify Yahweh, and they applied it directly to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they did it over and over and over. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the God of the burning bush. He's the God of the Red Sea. He's the God of Mount Sinai. He's the God of the tabernacle. He's the God of the law. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is kurios. Whoa. They, they did it. They did it a ton, and they meant to do it. It's exactly what we're saying. As such, the apostolic confession that Jesus is Lord follows Jesus' own lead in equating himself with the God revealed to the Hebrew patriarchs as Yahweh. Do you guys remember this? Before Abraham was, I am. And up come the stones, right? Did you just say, that's exactly what I said. That's exactly what I said, I am. 
I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am Yahweh in your midst. It's who I am. When the church says Jesus is Lord, that's exactly what they mean. Second, when we say that, it's that exclamation that says that faith and devotion to this one. I'm sorry. It, it, it expresses that faith, devotion to this one, this one who is exclusive, unqualified, universal Lord. And think about that when we're doing mission, for instance. If we don't mean that, then what, then what, else, do, what else could we mean? That Jesus Christ is some provincial quasi-deity. On what grounds do we, do we bring the good news of repent and believe the gospel to the world? Because Jesus is Lord, right? Does he say stuff like that? It's exactly what he says. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, precisely for that reason, I'm not a provincial deity, right? I'm not that. Therefore, go, teach, preach, baptize in the name of Father and Son and Holy Spirit because I am the Lord, right? When we talk about reality in Jesus Christ relative to knowledge of God, we want to say all of these things. God is Trinity. That's God's Christian name, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no God behind the back of Jesus Christ different or other than him. He is not a perspective on God. He is the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We'll talk about that later, but we know God humanly because God now is humanly mediated to us. The infinite other comes to us humanly in human words, right? In human flesh to make himself known to us. Yikes. Wow. So confessing Jesus Christ as Lord with the apostles means that we heartily affirm Jesus' own claim to that all authority in heaven and earth being given to him. It means that we joyfully, right? Not apologetically, we joyfully reject all other would-be lords because the scope of Jesus Christ spans creation and recreation. He is that one. Such good news. And so the mission and proclamation of the church has come into the sphere of this Lord, right? Who sets you free and it's so lovely. Okay, we have time flies. Man, time flies. We have about six minutes. Let me bring up a couple of these things. I want to really show you as best I can in the time we have. I'll do it more as we go, but today. That when we talk like this, we're actually preaching the gospel. That's what this is. So we never want to say something like, well, let's keep the gospel the gospel. And I know it's like Trinitarian gobbledygook. It's for erudite people. It's really not like the substance of the gospel. What's the first thing that the church wanted to do when it could get together and travel freely? They wanted to pronounce on the Trinity, Nicaea. It's the first thing the church did because the church thinks that is the gospel, right? And there's such wisdom there. There's such pastoral wisdom. The Nicene Creed punctuates what we've been saying. Jesus Christ, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created of one being, of one reality. The homo, who is homoousian, of one nature, of one essence, as the Father. Let's explore that. That's the gospel. Let's do it backward a little bit. I wish we had an hour to do this, but let's just go backward and let's say this. What if Jesus isn't homoousian with the Father? What if in any way, shape, or form we'd, you know, as it were, pluck him from the life of God? 
so that he's different other than. What would we be saying relative to the gospel? That makes for really bad news. We'd be saying things like this, right? We'd have to. God is unknown, you know, that, that, that greater, more comprehensive God behind the back of Jesus Christ. He's ultimately unknown and even unknowable. Because how would we creaturely and creaturely ways, and that's what we are, get at knowledge of the infinite? If, hasn't, if heaven hasn't come to earth in Jesus Christ, if, time, if eternity hasn't come, right? If creator hasn't bound himself with his creation, how on earth could we know God? How on earth could we do it? Revelation, whatever else then would say after that would have to be something other than God's self-disclosure. We'd be left to like looking at trees and trying to discern God like we would evidence for a Yeti. Does that make sense to you guys? It's, um, Nicaea is so theologically stunning and good and profound, but also so pastoral. The gospel then, if Jesus Christ isn't homo sound with the Father, in the spirit, couldn't be the self-communication of God. The self-communication of God. That is, whatever else the gospel might be, it would be the bestowal of something that wasn't God's self. We want to say more than that, don't we? The gospel is actually Jesus Christ coming to us in the power of the Spirit to say, I want to actually bring you into life-giving union with me and impart to you all that I am as the incarnate Son and make you truly human that way and bring you up into the sphere of my knowing of the Father. That's the beauty of the gospel. We wouldn't be able to talk like that apart from the things we've been saying. And because we are saying the things we're saying, we must talk like that. The gospel's so good. If Jesus Christ isn't homoousion with the Father, then God would not have condescended to us in Jesus Christ. That's what we'd be saying. Wouldn't that be sad? That's such bad news. Whatever else would say about the love of God would say, God is love, and by the way, the love of God stops short in Jesus Christ, who isn't homoousion with the Father who is not the self-revelation of Father, who is not the self-communication of the Father, in whom the Father cannot be truly known, right? The love of God stops short. That would be so bad, so bad. We couldn't say that to see, hear, grasp Jesus Christ is exactly what it means to see, hear, and grasp the fullness of God. You couldn't say that. By the way, that's exactly what happens with, you know, you know what Unitarian Universalists are, right? They pluck, first they pluck, it's, it's, a, it's a rationalistic devolution of Christian orthodoxy that plucks, as it were, Jesus Christ from the being and life of God and then says Jesus Christ is one perspective on a God who's comprehensive behind his back and there are many perspectives to that God. That's, that's what happens there, and, it, and it, it almost inevitably happens. It almost inevitably happens. What we're talking about is the maintaining of the gospel and the identity and the Catholicity of the church, what we talked about in session one. If that weren't the case of Jesus Christ, that he's homoousian with the Father, we'd have to say something like this, the words and acts of Jesus Christ aren't the words and acts of God. 
And ultimately, there's no final authority and validity to anything Jesus Christ does or says. Not good, right? Not good. What kind of theological, pastoral, heavy lifting does this do for the life of the church? Immense. Just, just incalculable. Let me unpack this one just a little bit, because this, this goes into so much here. When we talk about things like grace or holiness or righteousness, if Jesus Christ, who is the fount of all God's blessings, the mediator of all, all things that the Lord wishes to give us, the yes and amen of all the promises of God, if Jesus Christ isn't homoousian with the Father, then all these things that we talk about, our Christian vocabulary, right? Grace, righteousness, holiness, they're impersonal, commodified abstractions apart from the being of God. Does that make sense? This is then what happens. God says, be holy like I am holy. Well, does, does God give what he promises, like Augustine says, and, and does he impart his own self in the gospel to make me such? Or is it just this? Okay, then I guess I better really clean up my act. And then the holiness of God is responded to by us by like a moral cleanup, which doesn't bring us close to the gospel, but actually brings us away from it. Does that make sense? We'd be saying things like this. If Jesus Christ isn't that one, homoousian with the Father, then all that he did for us, from manger to cross, would be exemplary, right? Could be that. Could be judicial. Could be that. And by the way, it is that. Those are good things. Way more, though. This is realities that bear upon the very life of God and the life of us as he's incarnate. This is what we'd have to say at the end of the day. Jesus Christ is, you know, some highly exalted creature, and that's it, who suffered and died under Pontius Pilate to melt our hearts. But he's not the Lord as man. And what he hasn't done is given the life of God as man. He hasn't done those things. And by the way, then eschatologically in the last day, would say that um, if it is the case, as Jesus says, that, we, that he judges the world by his gospel, if he's not the whole fullness of God dwelling bodily, then we're judged by something arbitrary that does have no ultimate bearing upon God's life, no real bearing upon God's life. When, when the church has talked like this, it is, it is mind-bogglingly good. I hope it'll make you, make it, will squeal for joy, right? Emotively. This is so, this is such a deep, rich reading of scripture that we have in the, in the great tradition. And so pastorally sensitive and so tuned into the mission and the proclamation of the church. It's just wonderful. All of those things, when we talk about knowledge of God and getting at reality, we, we get at that in Jesus Christ. It's, it's doggone good news. Now, what we, next time, I'm, I won't be here next week, but on the 17th, we want to talk about the same thing, the reality of God relative to our humanity. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is truly, fully human? What does it mean that we have a human emotional life? All of these things. Um, and the reality of, the Christ reality, as Bonhoeffer says, relative to the world. What this, what this does, actually, is it, it, it gives us a sacramental world rather than a, than a, than a modern flat earth culture. It gives us, it, 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 Jesus Christ gives to us a sacramental world so that we can enjoy all things in Christ and Christ in all things. So we'll do that on the 17th. Sound good? Peace of Jesus to you. Bless you. Thanks for having me.